like the show? Want to listen to episodes early? Consider becoming a patron. Starting at the $3 a month level, patrons get access to a custom patron-only feed where we put out episodes of Upstairs Studio podcasts like the Child Care Bar and Grill, Miss Becky's Classroom, That Early Childhood Nerd, the Renegade Rules podcast, and others early. That feed is just for patrons. You could be one of them. Go to patreon.com slash playvolutionhq or click the link in the show description to learn more. Hey everyone, it's Heather. I know you're here to listen to the podcast, but did you know I also offer all kinds of online consulting services? Stuff like webinars, book studies, curriculum training and consultation, and even companion activities for podcast episodes to use for staff development. If you're interested, you can check out my website at www.thatearlychildhoodnerd.com or you can email me at heather at thatearlychildhoodnerd.com. Thanks for listening. Grab your highlighters. Can't find them? They're probably right there in your pocket protector. It's time for that Early Childhood Nerd Podcast. Let's get nerdy. Here's Heather. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of That Early Childhood Nerd. I'm Heather Burnt Santi, and I always lately now I really have to concentrate because I keep forgetting the podcast name when I get ready <laughs> to do the intro. So, um, so I made it, but I feel like I need to explain that too. And um, on this episode, I've got Sam Balch. Hello! And she's very excited about things today. I'm excited um, about things all the time. Yeah, so we're Especially actually going <laughs> to talk about an article, Sam, that you wrote for um, Exchange Magazine. Um, wow. So the title is Places of Heartbreak, Places of Joy, Considerations for Serving Children Experiencing Homelessness. It says right there by Samantha Bunch. That, that's me. Exciting. I wrote that. <laughs> So I'm going to, I'm going to throw the quote out, but then we can kind of go wherever, you know, the drill. This is how, I, this is how I love the drill. Okay. So the quote is in early in the article, you ask and answer what then can and should be expected of early childhood, childhood, childhood educators within our programs. We cannot single-handedly reverse every trauma or uncertainty for families experiencing homelessness. However, we have a moral responsibility to respect and embrace the cultural, linguistic, and socioeconomic differences that weave the tapestry of our classroom communities. Wow, I wrote that. You did. Oh. It's such a good article. Like we, we just, before oh. we hit record, we're talking about how we both had to reread it before we recorded today. And I was like, yeah, she knows. <laughs> so, so, so make a case for people to listen to what you have to say or read to, what to you the have words to say said. about um, children experiencing homelessness, homelessness in our programs? Uh, well, first of all, the likelihood that you have served a child that either is actively experiencing homelessness or has experienced homelessness or is going to experience homelessness, especially if you're in the United States, is scarily high. Mm-hmm. Um, when I wrote this article, I used statistics from 2018. So I think that was the year before. So it's about one in 19 children under the age of six are experiencing homelessness. So it is important to kind of think about what that definition may be. So that could be anything from like, if I say homeless and your brain goes to sleeping next to a highway, that is one definition of homeless. There's also 
um, families that are living together in dwellings that would not traditionally be multifamily dwellings, like a family, two different families of four people living in a two bedroom apartment um, where you've got people sleeping on the couch or that sort of thing, that can also be defined as homeless depending on where you are. Mm -hmm. There isn't necessarily a national definition of it, um, kind of depends. And this is all sort of linked into like political things, like what a budget might be. Mm -hmm. So how that's being defined, especially for children can be a little fast and loose depending on which state you're in. Um, but there's a great likelihood that you have interacted with a child who has <laughs> unmet needs in terms of where they are living mm -hmm. and if their needs are being met. Right. So to say, no matter what program you're in, if you know, you're in a really affluent area, if you're thinking to yourself, well, these aren't my kids, they could be, mm -hmm. and you might not know it. Yeah. And that's okay. You don't have to know it. Families are under no obligation to share these things with you, but being aware of the diversity in your classroom, even if it's unseen diversity is going to make you a better teacher anyway. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. keep that in mind. And, and what is your professional experience working with my professional experience, families and children experience. Weird to say, pro professional experience. <laughs> For about a year and a half, I worked in a program that exclusively served children experiencing homelessness and transition. So we define transition as that sort of period of they have found a more stable place to live, um, whether that is they've got vouchers for. Um, low-income housing, or they are moving back in with grandparents for a few months, like they've stopped moving around and they're in a place where the trajectory is heading towards stable housing. Mm -hmm. So that about a year and a half, I worked in a program that was in a homeless shelter. So some of the children lived in the shelter, like upstairs, some of the children mm -hmm. came from other places. And then um, in other aspects of teaching, that I have, I have worked with children who are in transitional periods of their life, never quite like that program where it was exclusively children experiencing homelessness. Mm -hmm. It was six, seven, eight children in my classroom, all of which were in some degree of transition in their lives. But yeah, um, I have also, I've been really fortunate to volunteer and we talked about this, I think, or maybe it was on the other podcast. <laughs> um, I have done some volunteer work down at the U.S.-Mexico border mm -hmm. with um, PILA Global's NEST initiative. So those children are refugee children coming from Central and South America seeking asylum in the United States. So they are, um, again, when you sort of might picture that traditional idea of homelessness, that is a lot of that. A lot in more those, what, we, what we think. Yeah. Yeah. a lot more of that extreme disparity. So I've also done some work there and I know lots of other people have too. I know um, Sarah Gillum, the, direct, no, the editor, editor of Exchange, also <laughs> went to, they, in Samos, I think, Sarah, correct yeah, me if I'm wrong, there were two in Greece. she does a lot of work for refugees. And, and yeah, so they're, so that's, that's sort of where my work has been. Yeah. Um, so my next question, um, I, it will probably get to more of a conversational tone, but I have questions. Fine. I want to make I sure. I like questions. Okay, good. So we're, we're talking about um, children and families experiencing homelessness. We're not talking about homeless children, homeless families. Why is that important? Yes. 
I subscribe to this idea of person first language, um, which a lot of other people subscribe to. It's mm -hmm. becoming more of a common thing. Mm -hmm. And it might feel really awkward at first, especially if you're used to just saying homeless person, homeless child. Mm -hmm. You're not a bad person if you're saying that. <laughs> the, the idea is that we're encouraging you to see someone's humanity first mm -hmm. and not their situation first. Or at all. Or at all. <laughs> Like in many ways, it can be helpful to yeah. see the situation, which I'm sure we'll talk about because it gives you a context for maybe some unique behaviors you're seeing or some mm -hmm. unique needs that are coming up. And at the same time, their children first, their families first, their people first. Mm -hmm. they're, they're not defined by their situation forever. Mm -hmm. Like you don't want to be defined by the worst thing that's ever happened to you. So let's not do that to other people. Yeah. Let's say, hey, this is a person who is experiencing homelessness right now. Yeah. And we have a, a local shelter, a local um, organization that works um, uh, solely sort of committed to homelessness. Um, and they refer to people as their guests rather than, mm -hmm. you know, clients or the homeless and um, which I love. And then recently in, uh, they did like a Facebook post that was specifically saying, um, we talk about people experiencing homeless, not homeless people. Um, and in the comments, it got interesting because people were like, it's the same thing. It doesn't make any difference. You're just being PC or, you know, all the things that drive me crazy. What I, what I love about that, about that argument is like, when you say it doesn't make a difference, then just do it. Then do it. If it's, know, if it's, right? if it's honestly not hurting you, if you're like, it's the same thing, we'll just say the thing that makes the five other people more comfortable. Right. Otherwise, you're just willfully being a jerk. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. What's I mean, it's you? one thing to never have considered it um, or, right. you know, never, ha you know, no one's ever talked about person first language with you. And there are groups who don't want per person first language right. that have spoken out about that. But, um, but in this case, I think it puts the focus on the person first and then their situation second. And um, it's so important to me in everything we do with children that we keep their humanity at the forefront and that we see them as fully human deserving of all the things that I feel like I deserve. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And so, so it has really helped me um, to make that switch. Plus I think, changing the words you use automatically challenges your, your brain to change yep. the way that it thinks about those, those words yes. and those things. So, um, so I wanted to ask you that. Um, so, okay. Next question. I'm just oh. looking at all my highlights. Um, so you say that what strategies can I use when working with a child who is homeless should not be our first or only question. And so maybe that's an that. introduction to the rest of the things we want to talk yes, about. So what, what, do, what do we need to be thinking about instead <laughs> or what would be more effective? I think, I think again, it's always important for me to tell people if your first reaction is I want strategies for working with children who are homeless, you are not a bad person for right. thinking that. Absolutely. And, and for me, because saying, what that means is I want to help them. Exactly. Right, what yeah. that means is I care so much about this child and I recognize they're in a unique situation that I potentially cannot relate to. Mm -hmm. So I need to understand better how do I serve this child from my own context. Yeah. You're not a bad person for thinking that at all. You're a beautiful, wonderful, compassionate person. My perspective is if your first and only thought is I need strategies for working with these children, 
you're missing their humanity. You're missing best practices in a general sense because we don't go into education. What are the strategies for working with these three-year-olds? We go into education with what's developmentally, developmentally appropriate for this crew right? and how am I going to provide an environment that is well supported by materials and sure. people who love them and care for them and challenge them. Yeah. Or what can I expect from children who have faced trauma or experienced right. trauma? And what do I need to learn more about, think more about, um, wonder about how does it exactly. make you feel? All that kind of stuff is essentially answering the first, that question, but it's going well, deeper than just, um, well, you want to have you know, right. You want to have finger puppets, finger puppets, puppets and you want to have visual schedules. Like those yeah. are great tools, Yeah, but they're tools. Yeah. They're not the classroom. Yeah. yeah. You also like the tools can't do anything if the hands aren't working. So <laughs> you actually have to be working and doing stuff and thinking about it, yeah. which is why the first thing that I say in the article and that I, I think about constantly is just asking yourself, what do I think about? homelessness what do I know about it Mm -hmm. like the majority of people I would guess that have not experienced homeless in the United homelessness in the United States personally or like you know like a one degree removed like they've never had a friend who experienced it or a family member will likely buy into the lie that it is a personal moral failing that leads mm-hmm. to homelessness. It's not your fault for buying into that. We've been conditioned to do that based <laughs> on definitely the political system at large. Yes. And, you know, when you realize that it's not because people are lazy, it's because the system was not set up for them to win. Mm-hmm. Then we can, you can start moving forward with all of these other things you want to do, because then you're going to stop seeing the parent who shows up late as lazy and not caring, mm-hmm. but instead understand that that parent has to walk a mile to the bus with their two-year-old and doesn't have a bus pass. So they have to get all the change out to get <laughs> onto the bus. Mm-hmm. And then if the change machine isn't working on the bus, they've got to find the change so that they can get onto the bus. And then if the bus is crowded, then they're going to miss the bus and they're going to be late. Like it's going to lead you to all of these other things that make you a more compassionate person yeah. that make you more ready to slow down and work with children and families in the way that they need. And not just families experiencing homelessness, but any family. Right. And you, you say that at least once in the article that, you know, anything that, that we're talking about here that would be of benefit to children who have experienced or are experiencing homelessness um, are also good things for all children. (laughs) So if we're, if we just start to treat our day-to-day practice as curiosity or with curiosity and, and self-awareness as much as we can achieve that, then that's going to benefit all the children. And then we'll be ready when that one comes in or, you know, whatever the number is to, to meet them with the same kind of care and respect and curiosity. Yes. And that's, it's so important. And I don't mean that to say that, you know, you are a teacher who's very curious. You've got a lot of reflective practice going, you're setting up environments that are developmentally appropriate. I don't mean that to say that when a child comes into that, like, let's say perfect environment, they won't have challenges right? because trauma is its own beast. It is its Mm -hmm. own challenge. Mm -hmm. And if you've removed all of these other barriers, 
you're going to be able to focus on the specific nuances of a child's situation Mm -hmm. with much more ease and with much less frustration because you know that your environment is wonderful and beautiful for these children and they're learning and growing every day and they have opportunities to be social and to practice new skills and to take risks. And then you can say, okay, I'm noticing XYZ behaviors in this environment. What else might be at play here? Mm -hmm. How else can I serve that child? Who else can I call on to help me in this time of need? because no one should be asking you to fix it all yourself. You can't do that, especially with something as complex as childhood trauma. Right. (laughs) Please don't try and fix that. There are definite things that you can do that exacerbates the trauma um, and things you can do to support a child who's experienced that, but that doesn't mean it's all on your shoulders to fix. No. Uh, uh, so that's, that's tricky. So you, you, um, you talked about you in the article, you give three sort of steps or three do. processes. Can you tell that I was raised in the Protestant church? This is, this is a very, <laughs> yes. this is a very Presbyterian thing to do where like your, your sermon has like three points yes. <laughs> or, or high school essays that taught you three paragraphs, intro, three, three paragraphs, paragraphs and conclusion. You need three reasons. Like, there we go. One, two, three. Yep. So the first one's examine yourself. You kind of talked a little bit about that. And we're kind of in the middle of switch from judgment to curiosity now. Yeah. Um, so so what, in, in the article, you give an example of a parent who is upset that a child's throwing a peach away. Yeah. So this, exi- this is, I think, I, I all of the examples I use in the article are real. I like mm-hmm. change some identifying features, obviously. Yeah. Um, But that is one of my favorite anecdotes because that was like such a light bulb moment for me in Mm -hmm. understanding how this process plays out in person. Mm -hmm. So the anecdote is this child, I think I named her Naomi in the article. Um, Mm -hmm. She's two. She was eating an entire peach and it fell on the floor. And I said, oh, it fell on the floor. We got (laughs) to throw it away now. Because we, I can give you another one, but we can't eat the one that fell on the floor. Yeah. And, there, and I think there was also like Play-Doh and stuff on the floor. It's like the end of the day snack. Things are gross. <laughs> Things are gross. <laughs> Things are gross. Now, at the same time that I'm telling her this, her mom comes into the room to sign her out. What her mom sees is Naomi taking this Precious peach that, food. Looks, that has one bite taken out of it and throwing it in the trash and she basically runs over to her and says no no what are you doing we don't throw food away don't do that and it was it was a harsh tone Mm -hmm. and my first reaction was what (laughs) what and I chose to stop instead of saying whoa Mrs. Naomi's mom like don't I told her her to do that (laughs) I chose to stop And I chose to say, oh, that one fell on the floor. And at school, we don't eat food that falls on the floor. And that was all I said. And her mom said, oh, okay. It looked totally, it looked good to me. And I, like, I feel, in a a way, I felt like like a total idiot. I'm like, yeah, duh. Like, of course you would think that. It looks good. Yeah. What's, What's a little dirt? when you don't know where your next meal is coming from. This was Mm -hmm. a family that was coming out of food insecurity, Mm -hmm. like pretty severe food insecurity. Like, you know, 
pot, they don't know where their next meals are coming mm-hmm. from. Nutrition was never on their minds. So the fact that this child would throw away something that had like one bite taken out of it, it was fresh fruit that was appalling to her mother. Yeah. In the same way that the tone of voice felt appalling to me. But then by just having that conversation and learning what her mom was thinking, we were able to see each other a little more clearly. Right. So her mom was able to understand, okay, this school is always going to feed my daughter. And the school's going to give me food too. Because mm-hmm. she lived upstairs. So she had meals every day. So nobody's going to be hungry right now yeah so the this sort of health and safety that my daughter's being taught is okay we don't have to use this survival tactic anymore and, so, but, but also we don't judge the survival tactic right, right. so like, there's it definitely probably one of my thoughts would have been you're just gonna let your kid eat things off the floor um that doesn't what mom so and we come at that from like a health and safety perspective right right? like dirty food is bad for you sometimes and she was also coming at it from a health and safety perspective because she wanted to have food (laughs) exactly exactly her her daughter needs food to be to you know to be safe so both of us were coming at would be coming at it from a same from sort of the same intention but have very different reactions depending on our situations in life Yep. So when, when you're able, and this is a skill and this is a skill. I mean, I have been working on this for years and years now, ever since I specifically read it laid out like this, switching from judgment to curiosity. Mm -hmm. There, there are times when I don't do it well. Um, And this isn't to say that you will never have another judgmental thought in your entire life because you (laughs) will, and you do all the time. And it's okay to have judgmental thoughts because that's your brain trying to notice a pattern what's not okay is when you act on that without Mm -hmm. thinking about the other person's humanity, which Mm -hmm. is really what this is all coming back to. Right. So, so, you know, when you've got a child, another example I give, I think in the same sort of section is that there was a parent who would come in with her daughter and her daughter was always dressed really well. Um, Like her hair was always done in these beautiful like pigtails or braids. <laughs> and she had, like she tended to have newer looking clothes on almost every day. And this child loved to paint. This child painted all the time and I love to paint and I'm quite a messy person as well. <laughs> so when the child wanted to put the paint all on their arms and feel it on their face, I'm like, sure. Right, you know, I've been we'll wash it, it on. <laughs> yeah, we'll wash it off before you leave. But like, yeah, let's get to know that paint. How does that feel on your hands? How does it feel on the paper? Mom came in one day and said to me, don't let her get paint all over her clothes. And I, I started <laughs> I felt myself like getting puffed up uh-huh. with a little speech about Actually. why it's important <laughs> for children to get messy and like, oh, yeah, I have yeah. quotes for this. Um, and like how I'll, I'll, I'll do a whole a bulletin a board. <laughs> right. Like, oh, well, offer a child, uh, like I can offer her a smock, but I'm not going to make her wear one because yeah. I'm not going to like stay for her creative development like that or whatever nonsense yeah. I was thinking in my brain. And <laughs> instead I didn't say anything. And then the mom kept talking and she said, I dress her real nice for school and I can't be spending my money to do laundry every day. I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, of course you can't. <laughs> oh, wow. Like, 
yeah, oops, I am a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not a jerk. I'm a person uh-huh. who was thinking in one context and not yeah. thinking in another. Yeah. And when I chose to stop and listen, this made perfect sense to me. So then I explained to the two and a half, three-year-old, if you want to paint, look at all these old t-shirts I have. Which one do you want to wear so that your clothes stay so nice and neat? Because I know you love your clothes being nice and neat. And she was totally fine with that. Once I was like, please put this shirt on. She's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> I don't care. Right. Um, and I, like I had to, you know, come off of my little high horse of theory and practice and come back to reality mm-hmm. of mom places such a high value on school for her three-year-old daughter. She specifically makes sure her daughter looks good for school. Mm-hmm. So that her daughter feels good for school. And it's like, you are going to the special important place. You are going to look mm-hmm. nice for the special important place. Right. And she's probably and worried about stigma. Um, 100%. And she's probably worried, well, obviously about laundry. Um, but also um, maybe, you know, I'm, I'm not super confident that I'm doing the best thing for my kid right now because of our situation, but at least right. I can dress her. I can, I can make sure she yeah. looks neat and ready for school and that when people see her they see a child who looks neat who is clean who is showered who has had their teeth brushed who is in these clothes that are that don't have holes that don't have stains Mm -hmm. that fit her well so yeah to just listen for a second and make that switch and I think a lot about how my relationship with that parent would have been different if I hadn't listened and if I had instead come at her with all of this like theory and, you know, jargon and basically wrote her off. And if I had said, oh, you know, what you want isn't good enough because I know what's developmentally appropriate. Like Samantha, who the hell are you to decide that? (laughs) (laughs) What you want for your child is wrong. (laughs) Right. Like that child was able to paint as much as they wanted to. Yeah. They had a lovely time. Yeah, we, we made a system that worked for them Uh because I chose to listen instead of thinking that this parent was so stuck up and didn't understand what they were talking about. So (laughs) it's, but again, it's it's not easy. It's absolutely a skill that has to be practiced. Um, yes. Yes. Because I, I think part of a lot of our teacher training has been how to advocate for good practice and mm-hmm. how to um, talk about the rationale for doing things the way you do them. And, and that's and great. That is I, so important. Very important, but it can't be the only re- response right. you have to every um, parent comment or concern. Right. But also if you're going to get into reality and I mean, I see this across socioeconomic lines, but definitely with um, the children that I worked with in that very low income program, Mm -hmm. especially with screen time. I see this a lot Oh yeah. with like this, you know, I can get on my high and mighty horse about how just handing your child, your phone is passive screen time. And that's not doing anything for them. And, you know, you need to be engaging your child in conversation and not just handing them a device so that they're Mm -hmm. quiet when you're at the WIC office. Yeah. You want your kid to be quiet. Like, who am I to tell you that you can't let your child watch Frozen for the third time today? Right. Because 
you have appointments you need to get to with the housing office right. because you don't want them to be having a breakdown on the trolley because and it's all, you've already had a hard day. Right. They're, they're sitting for, you know, public transportation everywhere they have to get to. And then they're sitting right. through for appointments and then they're sitting for nothing is made. They're not in environments that are made for them. Right. They haven't yeah. had the chance to run around. You just have to get them from place yeah. to place. Yeah. Get okay. Give them the <laughs> iPad. Like I, I want you to be successful in a long-term way, which means that maybe in this short-term way, you're going to do things that I might originally say, ah, no, Yeah. but it's going to be okay. Like what I had, I did have a parent tell me once, um, that the only way their child will go to sleep is if they gave the child the iPad and they would watch like two hours of television and fall asleep watching the iPad. And, you know, <laughs> I, I mean, I think that's such an important point, Heather. Like, think about what, like, I sometimes I scroll way too much. Yeah. You know, yeah. I am guilty of that. And just because I am not poor doesn't mean mm-hmm. that I deserve to do that. Right. Um, or that someone who is doesn't deserve mm-hmm. to do that. So, whereas my first reaction might have been, whoa, that's not healthy brain that's engagement. A lot my of second, screen. Yeah. My second reaction was, well, yeah, obviously, no one has, <laughs> no one has taught you how to put a two year old to bed. Especially when this two-year-old is very strong-willed and does not feel like listening to you because this two-year-old has no power mm-hmm. anywhere else in their life. Right. So they are going to exert the power at bedtime. And you might be able to put me in this bed, but I can scream. <laughs> and I can scream yeah. loud. Yeah. So if you don't want me to scream loud, you might as well hand me Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. <laughs> so... Yeah. To, like to and to see those things, like again, it's not about me fixing all of those things, but I could always offer, like, oh, so and so has, you know, a little pamphlet about bedtime routines. Do you think you might want to take a look at that? Right. And if they say no, they say no. Yeah. And that's okay. Maybe I just leave it out one day. It's just <laughs> nearby, in case you want to take it, or in case you want to take a look at it. Maybe it just happens to be in the take home folder on Friday. Uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah, you're you're not gonna fix everything. Uh-huh. You can and offer tools, of, but yeah, hundred yeah. percent. But I think a lot of people get into this profession because they like being able to do a lot of things and have a lot of power, and there's nothing wrong with that. And I think a lot of people in this profession get really used to it. Yeah, and then we start to forget that we are not going to fix everyone's yeah. life all the time yeah it's hard for nurturers to step back from that Um, because you want to and I think that's that's one of the reasons why a lot of people I think are drawn to this work with children who are in really vulnerable situations because you you're kind of you're the kind of person that cares so much about it and Mm -hmm. you want to nurture it and you want to fix it and you believe that if I just keep working harder if I keep finding these different resources if I keep trying these new things I'm gonna fix it all Mm -hmm. and you are not and that's okay that doesn't (laughs) define your worth as a person this is something I had to work on in therapy a lot oh nice (laughs) okay yeah like it doesn't define your worth the things you've done during the day that have made the children feel safe and comfortable and happy are what have made a difference mm-hmm. and like that is enough yeah yeah <laughs> it's you're I you're never gonna fix it all and I feel like now rereading this article I really kind of wanted I if I was going to write it again I would want to hit that home harder 
You're well, never going to fix another article. This all. Just do article number another two. one. Just, just like do it again. <laughs> three year follow up. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so the last of the three is uh, of your of your recommendations is to reflect on best practices. Yep. And we kind of talked a little bit about how what's good for you know the children in this group is actually really good for probably all the children yeah. in your group. Um, but I wanted to just I guess invite you to talk more about that. What do you yeah. mean? Yeah, and. So I, one of the things I do mention is, you know, this, so this idea that what's good for children at large is going to be good for children in certain subsects, like mm -hmm. children who are experiencing homelessness. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, those children could and probably would likely benefit from some specialized things, mm -hmm. like for example, a lending closet of clothes. Yeah. If you just happen to have a whole bunch of clothes around, invite parents to take them and you don't have to do this in a way where it's you don't have to say you know, homeless extra clothes right. for the homeless families you don't have to write <laughs> clothes for the poor you don't have to you can just say hey if anybody needs clothes you can take them uh -huh. like feel free to take them we have a lot and hey if you have anything your child's grown out of feel free to put it in here yeah we'll keep it going if you have extra snack at the end of the day that legally you can't put back in the fridge like you can offer it to the children and the families as they're leaving. Mm -hmm. um, there are so many wonderful resources out there and trainings that you can take that might give you more of an understanding. You know, I find local trainings are especially helpful because a lot of places will have really, lo really specific local histories about uh -huh. why there might be certain populations sure. in that area. And that can be really helpful in understanding, oh, what services are going to be useful for the families that I'm serving. Yeah. Um, and learning yeah. about um, learning about trauma and its effects on children and brain development and things like that. Please I do that. Yeah, please do it, but don't please. assume that it's only poor kids who need it. Either. Yeah. Yeah. No, please. Please. I feel like it needs to be more just ingrained in us as educators, like through our education training yeah. programs. This idea of trauma, like. Even my, so my bachelor's was in elementary school. Mm -hmm. I don't think I really ever had a class that was only about, you know, critical pieces of development, right. like things that might've happened to children that will impact the way that they learn, that they see the world, that they interact with other people, that yeah. they were maybe like one-off comments or yeah. one chapter in a book right about yes like, oh, exactly this is trauma kids week are depressed. yeah this right. module is trauma <laughs> and um it's way more complicated and nuanced than that it really can be woven into every other topic we're teaching about 100 percent, and it, it and it should be and some of you know the brain development research moves fast and it's hard to roll out um but that doesn't mean that we don't have a responsibility to seek it out figure it out find people right listen to find things to read and once again no one's asking reality. you to be perfect right no one's asking you to be perfect at right. it 100 percent of the time we're but asking seek you to understand it's curiosity yes. right it's it's that same thing the two the two big things that i would recommend to anyone are looking up um adverse childhood experiences uh -huh. so aces or an ace score i also i always recommend doing it on yourself too mm -hmm. um you can find it's these are free resources um and then there are obviously like more in-depth ACE trainings that you can attend if you'd like to. Um, but, but at a very surface level, it's a series of questions about things that happened in your childhood. And every 
answer you give is a certain point. Mm-hmm. And the number, the more points you have, the higher your ACE score is. And there are. And a high score is bad. A high score, high score has is a higher, dangerous. <laughs> a high score has a higher correlation with not just behavioral, like you, you're more likely to be and you're more likely to have a dependency on alcohol or other substances, uh-huh. but also you're more likely to have cancer and like uh-huh. other physical ailments that you might not immediately connect with mm-hmm. something that happens in your childhood. Yeah. And again, it's not like a prophecy. It doesn't guarantee that that will happen, but yeah. it does say, hey, there's a lot of interesting research about how if a number of these things happen to you in your youth, you could be seeing the effects in ways yeah. you don't even realize when you're older. A really great book that it, it's a, it's heavy. <laughs> um, and it's, it's a heavy book, both like in the way it's written and in the topics it's discussing. Um, the Body Keeps the Score yeah. is all about trauma. Something I will always remember from that book that I had never consciously thought of is the fact that you like every person begins forming in their grandmother's body. Oh boy, yeah. Because when your mother was in utero, women, people was- with ovaries are born with all of the eggs they're going to have in their lifetime. Mm-hmm. So the egg that made you was inside of your grandmother. <laughs> so everything that happened to your grandmother also happened to you. Mm-hmm. You just weren't there for it in <laughs> this form. And I read that and it blew my mind, people. Mm -hmm. I was like, whoa. So things like stress, things like traumatic events, like all of these things, you know, there's a reason it's generational trauma Mm -hmm. is a real thing. Mm -hmm. So to see it written in that way and to start to really have an understanding of generational poverty and, you know, these, the reasons why it's not just undone, Yeah, you know, with a with a new child so interesting highly recommend that book yeah the second thing um <laughs> that i would say look up is trauma-informed care right which is re- i feel like i'm seeing it more and more lately and yeah. i feel like i'm also seeing it sometimes not used very well yeah it's um, become one of those buzzwords that people hook on to um a lot of times it's a funding source requirement or or something you think is going to make it look good on your grant application that early childhood is so good at taking those words and not necessarily understanding (laughs) um what is it the Nash? i have to look up but uh, i want to say it right yeah the national sent the national child traumatic stress network has a lot of really great resources Mm -hmm. on things like trauma-informed care and traumatic stress and early childhood all like woven together. Yeah. The majority of them are free. Yeah. So if you are the kind of person that's like, I want to learn more about this. And I hope you all are that kind of person. <laughs> Even just, you have like that little inkling of curiosity. Right. Highly recommend looking at their their webinars and their printed resources yeah. um, because you can learn a lot about not just like the brain science behind it, but also like concrete actionable steps yeah. of, oh, maybe having all of these choices in my classroom is a bit overwhelming for a child that's never been in a space that is sized for them. Uh Uh So maybe I'm going to pull some of the materials back or only offer some of everything 
but not put all of like the animals and all of the blocks out. I'm going to put some so that I can legitimately teach the children how to play with them in a way that's safe. Mm -hmm. Because I know for me, one of my big learning curves was obviously every child knows how to play. Sometimes the play they're going to gravitate towards is throwing things Mm -hmm. because that's a great movement. That is so much fun. And if you throw the blocks, someone can get hurt. Yeah. (laughs) I was dealing with this whole, like, I'm trying to stifle their play, Uh but I want to keep them safe. And I'm like, okay, we'll teach them how to play with the blocks in a way that's safe. And then hand them things they can throw. Yeah. (laughs) You can, you can do this. You just have to do it. (laughs) Right. And and sometimes it's just, like you said, the, the number of materials is so overwhelming. So you can start with just a smaller selection of blocks and yes. sit with them and, and yes. watch be them a part build. of it. Yeah. Be a part of it. And then know that there's more over here and then it's not quite so, ah, yes. and, and more of a focus on what can I do with these materials? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think, I think, and this, I guess is sort of like that when people are like, what are those concrete strategies? I will say one of the things that I noticed was the children flutter from thing to thing very quickly. The children that I worked with, which makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. There is an overwhelming amount of choices for them to choose from Mm -hmm. that they want to have. Yeah. And that is great and wonderful. And they hadn't been around a lot of those materials before. So I had to pull back myself and pull back some of the materials to then almost in like that sort of proto Montessori style like I'm going to give you a lesson on these materials Uh or just like create a space where you're free to explore the play-doh with me so that I can tell you please don't eat that it will make you sick (laughs) because if I'm leaving them to do it by themselves they don't know that yet Right. They haven't played with it before. Right. It looks a lot like it food. It looks like food. It smells like I'm a, food I'm eat it. sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> I think about, um, so I grew up really poor and um, uh, even, you know, I was 19 when I got married and still pretty low income, but um, not, no insecu- food insecurity. We had shelter, just, you know, we were students. <laughs> and, um, but I think about that first couple of years away from home and having choices over what I could do and get. And I remember the first time I got to like a real bookstore and I had such a problem for a few years because I, every book I saw, I'd be like, I will never have a chance again to get this book. I have to buy it now and got myself into all kinds of credit card trouble. But I think about that when I see kids who maybe haven't seen the kinds of materials that we have or, um, we bring out something that's brand new. If they're not used to having any power over those choices or haven't experienced the consistency of these things will still be here tomorrow. If you didn't get to do everything today, I think a lot of that flitting around will settle down eventually. That is a, that is such an important point. That actually reminds me of another story. I think I might've told the story before, but um, it is one of, one of my students um, who, was and I assume will always be a little spitfire um (laughs) was he was building with the magnetiles which he loved and he hadn't cleaned up his snack there was about I would say it was maybe four feet between the carpet and the table where he (laughs) ate his snack so Uh in my brain when I asked him oh can you take a break and go clean up the snack this was no big deal 
he did not want to. Uh And he was ignoring me. He was telling me no. And I felt myself starting to get frustrated. Like, Uh how dare you? This is an easy request. (laughs) Um, And then I decided to stop that part of Samantha and get the other Samantha out who wanted to ask a question. And I thought, okay, what is my buddy thinking about right now? What's going on? They don't have the language to tell me what it is, mm-hmm. even they if may they not know what it is. Yeah. <laughs> Great. But he knows I am not getting up. I am building this castle. I have been working on this for 10 minutes now. Uh-huh. You're not getting me out of here to throw away my cheese stick wrapper. Leave me alone. <laughs> so I sat down next to him and I, I thought about it. And I was thinking, okay, maybe he just needs to know it's not going anywhere. Right. So I said, you know, hey, I will sit right here and I will put my arms around it like this. And I will be the giant protecting this castle while you throw your trash away. So I won't let anybody else touch it and nobody's gonna clean it up. And he got right up and he threw it away. Uh-huh. <laughs> he yeah. needed to know that the thing he was working on was not gonna be cleaned up. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized so much of this child's day was things happening without them knowing you know, they would come back and it would be okay. We're leaving from either the library or we're leaving from this place we're living right now, or we're leaving this restaurant. It was never, they were never consulted in Mm. these things. So to tell them, I'm not going to move this because you don't want it to be moved yet. I'm going to be here. It's going to be here and you can come back. I think that was exactly what they needed in that moment. And that continued to work for quite some time with like that strategy with that child of, oh, I'll watch it and I'll make sure it's safe. Mm-hmm. You go do the thing that we need you to do and I'll make sure this is safe. And, you know, so like you said, this idea of, is this a permanent thing that mm-hmm. I have right now needed to be not just said, but expressed in right. a way that they could physically see it. And, and I was an adult <laughs> still right. wondering I was if I'd ever have a chance to to have this thing again um, if I didn't get it and right now. So you think about important. a three-year-old, holy cow. Yeah. And I think for a lot of, a lot of these, even, you know, just in telling that story now, it's really making me think about how that was the environment I wanted to make for them every day because there were cases when some of them just didn't come back ever. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, you, we would try to get a hold of them. We would use the numbers that we had and we would never, we wouldn't know where they went. Yeah. And that, so to make sure that in my classroom, they knew you have a space here and you are welcome here and I will keep your things safe and I will keep you mm-hmm. safe and there is food to eat yeah. and there are choices to make. You know, that, that was the most important part of the day to me. And Sometimes goes- donors... Sometimes donors like would ask me about, yeah, they would ask me about other things. They would ask me about like numbers and letters uh-huh. and stuff. And Absolutely, I, of course, no, I was in the toddler room, you know, the two and three-year-olds. So I could always be like, well, you know, really with our two and three-year-olds, our biggest focus is getting them comfortable with each other and with the routines and all of these social emotional skills. So of course, you know, we sing songs and we look at our names which a lot of that I was like just saying to say to yeah. them, you know, Lisa Murphy's language. Surely the they've seen their names somewhere. Right. You have, you. <laughs> you have different roles in nonprofit yeah. than yes, you do definitely. like in big education, mm-hmm. but I could, you know, I could learn the things that they wanted yeah. to hear about and then tell yeah. it to them. Um, but to, you know, the, the point of it for me was these children know they have somewhere safe to be. Right. And if they don't come back one day, 
they were safe and happy here. They had it that day. Or and that that goes that back to, um, you know, what you were saying about you can't fix it all. You can't fix every problem. You may, nope. that may be discouraging, but while they're with you, there's so much that you can do. There is to support and, and I, help and, and foster and keep safe. Um, yeah. It's a, it's a tremendous responsibility, but also an honor to be it, able it really to, is. to have that space and to hold them in that space. And it's, and it's not a personal thing. If something happens and you don't see the children again, mm-hmm. I am, I am not thinking of one instance. Um, we had a set of twins who were there, they were there for about a month. Um, and then one day they didn't come back. And then they weren't there the next day and they weren't there the next day. And we we would usually hold spaces for about a month um, to kind of see what yeah. would happen. Cause sometimes people would come back be around. there and then come back. And, you know, really our process with that was then having conversations with them because we want them to know that, hey, we, we want to hold you accountable for not telling us where you were, but more importantly, were you safe? Were you fed? Is everything okay? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I distinctly remember, you know, those, the, the twins did not come back. Um, never heard from them again. And I went to the library one day and I am getting on the trolley. This is in San Diego. I'm getting on the trolley to come home from the library because it's getting dark and I look across the train and there is that whole family and I see them and I wave to them Uh and they wave back and they were getting off as I was getting on there was no time for a conversation but the mom waves to me she has the brightest smile on her face and the door is closing and all I can say is it's so good to see you yeah that's that's all that I had because that's that's all that I cared about Mm -hmm. I, I was I you know, was I angry and annoyed and sad that they never contacted us and didn't tell us what happened? Yeah, of course. But in that moment, all I cared about was that that family was together and they looked okay. (laughs) I didn't know what was going on. I still don't know what's going on, but they looked okay. And that was enough at that moment. And that was really pivotal for me to realize you're not fixing everything. Mm -hmm. But I know that that set of twins had a great month at school for the month they were there and you know that's all I could do Mm -hmm. yeah and I mean that was a time when they were safe for that month they were able to um, learn and socialize and experience uh, safety and acceptance and that's not wasted um, yeah, uh, you know, a month is a long time. And it's not wasted. I know it's not wasted that. on their parents either. Right. You know, I know, I know that their parents saw that. I know that their parents appreciated that. And whatever circumstances led them to have to then leave so abruptly, uh-huh. I know that they still saw what happened there, and they saw the care and love that they deserve as people, like mm-hmm. the, the children deserve and the families deserve. Right. Like this that isn't out of the norm. That shouldn't be what's out of the norm. That should be the bare minimum for human beings. Right. <laughs> but it is out of the norm. I mean, right. I've Which is had enough experience with, uh, uh, you know, social service kinds of things um, as a kid. And then as a young mom to know that it's often very dehumanizing <laughs> to, right. to go and get the help that's supposed to be there yeah. for you. And which is why, I, I really want to hit home the whole, like what we talked about with like person first language, like mm-hmm. find their humanity first. Yes. <laughs> find, find who they are beyond the situation, mm-hmm. you know, and 
that's when you're going to form relationships with people and when you're to feel most comfortable it requires a lot of vulnerability and a lot of unlearning for a lot of people um but at the end you serve so much more effectively when mm -hmm. you're able to do that mm -hmm. and you know i I, I titled the article about places of heartbreak and places yeah. of joy because that's that's what it is you i was know? just gonna I say the the sort of last line of the article before a couple of anecdotes is your journey will bring you to places of heartbreak and to places of joy expect and embrace them both yeah like i just told a bunch of really bummer stories you know <laughs> and that's okay there are things that are bummers but i also have such wonderful funny stories and such great uplifting stories and you know if if you're only thinking it's going to be doom and gloom and nothing's ever going to get better it's going to be a really bad time and if you're only thinking you're going to single-handedly help change everything and everyone's going to have such an incredible trajectory after meeting you and being in your classroom you're going to have a bad time yeah. but it's going to be a wild dichotomy of both <laughs> things right you're going you've got to get with those it. uh teacher is a savior movies out of your brain <laughs> oh boy please just <laughs> where everything's fixed by the end of the movie <laughs> right because yeah no no it doesn't no. work that way no and i like again therapy was really helpful for me like if i would say for a anybody i mean i think all teachers should like you know maybe like have somebody they talk to every now and then because it's just a tough gig right but especially if you work in a program that is serving a high proportion of children who are experiencing homelessness or have experienced trauma please talk to professionals about it find other communities of care because um moral injury is some it's I've I've heard it called compassion fatigue before. Right. I think but moral I also injury is a little bit more effective and clearer. Yes. Um, but yeah, I've, I've heard compassion fatigue too. And that just and makes it sound like, oh, we got tired of being nice. Exactly. <laughs> but it's Whereas deeper. Like, it's deeper. It's it's a moral injury because I know for me, part of it that was so hard was like, oh my God, all of these people are out here living. Mm. and I and like down the street there are like multi-million dollar restaurant renovations yeah. and, and and even you know just, I go home to a comfortable house right. and food in my How, pantry <laughs> yep and so to sit there with that by yourself don't just don't I'm telling you please don't <laughs> um you can email Heather and Heather can give you my email and I will talk to you about it because don't hold it all it's too much yeah yeah. It's too complex. People were not made to understand suffering on this scale. Right, right. So you and, have to talk to someone. Um, I'll be the first one to tell you that a bubble bath and wine is a wonderful way to take care of yourself. But there are some, sure can. some situations Absolutely. that just need a little bit deeper, more intentional self-care <laughs> than um, getting in the in the tub every night, which I do. Uh, yeah, it's... <laughs> It's, it's important work and it's great work and you have to take care of yourself yeah. if you're going to keep doing it. Keep doing it. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Um, so do you have a last, last thought or anything you wanted to get to that we didn't, we should probably wrap it up. I feel like, well, my last thought would be um, just, and you did not mention this. The reason this article was written is because of Heather, dear listeners, <laughs> because she asked me if I wanted to co-write an article with her. And I thought that was the coolest thing that had ever happened to me. And I was like, yes, and then I'm so I bailed. excited. <laughs> and then she was like, I can't do it. 
you should just write it. And I was like, oh, I can't do that. I can't do that. And guess what, people? Yes, you can. Yes, you si can. Se and <laughs> so I did. And I wrote it. And I was like, but they're not going to want it. They're not gonna it's want a this. good article, they, Sam. Nobody it's knows a- who I am. Yeah. And um, they wanted it. And that was really cool. So yeah. thanks, Heather. That was really cool that you like, <laughs> A, wanted to write with me in the first place. And then B, thought I was good enough to do it on my own. Absolutely. Like, that was really Absolutely. cool. Because I have now written for exchange three times. Yeah. And that feels I was really say, exciting. I thought it was some, I thought you had a couple more. Yeah. I did. And I got to be the quote today, everybody. Dreams come true <laughs> is what I'm saying. It's really exciting stuff. <laughs> I didn't know that would be so exciting for you. I'll we'll work we'll work your quotes into a couple more episodes just to keep this <laughs> high going. Just keep you rolling. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Sam, both for the article and for um, recording this Thank episode. You. I think it um, I think it's just powerful to have your um, your insight and your perspective and your experience and also your heart. <laughs> Thank you. It's oh, and like great. it's. I think the only other thing I would add is like this, this like scratches the surface of Mm -hmm. everything that goes into this kind of work. Like there are so many great people out there that are also doing this work in many different ways. Listen to them too. (laughs) Go find them. Yes. There are voices. Follow them. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks again, Sam. Um, Thank you. Thanks everybody for listening to another episode. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. And that's the show. Now go get your nerd on. This has been an Explorations Early Learning Upstairs Studio production. Oh.